Wow. You're gonna like this. Oh, no, I'm not. Cause there is no goddamn middle. This is not unlike ancient Rome, by the way. Not so much the family circus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when, um, I did, when I did Mary Shelley, I had the same issue with necromancy. A lot of them yeah. wanted to create self-sustaining farms and got into crystals. I know! Okay. I understand that. And, but yeah, I'm reading Livy, uh, who is a shitty historian. Because eerie guy guys. Others say that because Laurentia's body was common to all the shepherds around, she was called a she-wolf, which is a Latin term for whore. You were audible last season. It just, most of it was you slamming the table. As, as <laughs> the, the Romanists at the table. Well, duh. Yeah. Obviously. Ipso facto. Right. You know, to engage in a little bit of dog Latin. You have a sword rat. Having gotten a lot of practice since Ed Blaylock has not been here, he bought a house, he gets to take the time off to make it livable, uh, but I have gotten better at giving his introduction. I am a Latin teacher and a drama teacher up here in Northern California. Uh, I have spent the, la the better part of this year trying to teach kids drama while wearing masks and who didn't sign up for the class. So uh, I spent my break recuperating, uh, not exercising enough, and drinking way too much milk. Uh, that's my story. Uh, with me yet again is our special guest, uh, Amanda Lanham. Uh, Amanda, who are you? Tell us what you're doing. Well, I am a former academic and yoga instructor, um, current yoga instructor, former academic, um, who has spent most of this past week um, hanging with family really just getting prepared for christmas my nieces are home from college hmm. because i have nieces that are in college which is you know i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> just in case you didn't think you were old yeah yeah definitely old actually that was before uh we were recording this podcast i went over to my sister's house hmm. and uh, I was telling her that that's what I was doing, that I was going to go um, be on your podcast and that asked her if she remembered Soap, mm -hmm. the show. And she's like, oh, yeah, I love that show. And I'm like, yeah. So I, my friend was really excited when he found out that I used to watch it mm -hmm. because he had this podcast coming up. And, she, and I'm like, you know, because obviously he was having trouble finding, I think, people that were big fans of it because <laughs> and I kind of like trailed off. She's like, because you're old. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Yep, that's it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you, sister. So, well, cool. Well, shout out to your sister. Hope she enjoys these episodes. I yes. assume that, you know, she'll listen to what her, her baby sister does. 
Uh, Maybe. She thinks I'm a big dork, so, you know. <laughs> I don't see why that would stop anybody from... She's a judgy bitch. I don't know. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> well, uh, sister if judgy bitch, watch, glad you're I listening. You. Yeah, yeah. If she watches, she's performed a miracle. Uh, this is only an audio That's medium. That's true. But... Uh, I'm so, looking at you right now. It's visual for me. This is true. This is true. And my deepest condolences. Uh, actually, let me try covering the camera and seeing what that does. Oh, cool. Now I just have a Geek History of Time logo. Damn right. And then I'm back. <laughs> All right. So uh, last when last we spoke, uh, when we spake, uh, we just got into the, the soap memo. Uh, and we yes. got into... The efforts to essentially remove it from the air before it aired. Right. Those efforts were ultimately a failure, but Thank they goodness. did bring a lot of social, economic, and uh, moral pressure to bear, which is kind of the thesis of what I was going to talk about in general. Mm-hmm. And as per my usual, uh, context, 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 history, 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 thesis comes in the second episode. Uh, so <laughs> there's a reason I don't write TV. Um, so soap does finally premiere in 1977, uh, but when it does, uh, it is preceded by a disclaimer that viewer discretion was advised. (laughs) This disclaimer would be read by Rod Roddy, the voice that you hear at the beginning of every single episode. Okay. The one that does the, the this is the story of two sisters, Uh Jessica Tate and Mary Campbell, that guy. Um, for the entire first season, he would read the disclaimer. After that, people seemed to know what they were getting into, and so it was phased out. Okay. Now, critically, Soap was largely appreciated. Uh, it still is ranked in the top 100 of TV shows ever. Yes, um, and fairly recently, like 2007, it was voted that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's a difference between critical and commercial success, uh, ultimately. Sure. Um, for instance, there are a lot of things that are critical successes that have then gone on to become cult favorites mm-hmm. that were not commercial successes. Uh, and, and we don't remember them as such. We don't remember them for the commercial failures that they were. Uh, for instance, Bust, best example I have is Buster Keaton's The General. Hmm. Uh, he wrote that, he, he directed that, he co-directed it in 1927. He, it was his op- magnum opus. Um, it did not do well commercially and it had a big budget for, for the time. It was like 1.5 million and it only made like 2.3 million. Um, as a result, I believe it was MGM. They basically put huge controls on him and the kinds of movies he could make because of how it did at the time, which makes sense. It's the studio system. That's how it goes. Sure. The kicker is though, is that it's one of the most famous silent films of all time. It's considered a classic. It is the one that you show if you're not going to do anything by Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and and Chaplin and Keaton had very different aesthetics, very different uh, approaches. Um, but it is it is a vital piece of of cinema mastery, quite honestly. Um, the mise en scène that he uses when he is chopping the wood, going past the Union Army. Um, you know, where the action's going in two different directions. I mean, just the, the, the amount of choreography that the scenes took, um, it's really quite well done. Um, critically, didn't do much. Uh, so, like, stuff like that. Uh, and, and I'd say Soap kind of falls into that category. And it's, it's definitely become a cult classic. Yeah. Well, it um, kind of reminds me of, like, in the, um, 
more TV realm of like mm -hmm. Arrested Development. That show when it when that show aired, yeah, it had three seasons on network TV, and right. it had like super critical acclaim and cult kind of following. Mm -hmm. But just commercially, they couldn't get their feet underneath them. And then yeah. many years, and so the show gets canceled, and then many years brought back on Netflix because. Um, there's so many more mediums now for people to. Yeah. It, it's a democratized kind of shows. platform in a yeah. lot of ways. And now you don't have to capture mash numbers to be considered successful. Right. Um, actually, it's interesting because there's another TV show that had, is her name Portia Della Rossi? Is that yeah. her name? Portia Rossi, okay. yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, there's another show that has her on it um, called Better Off Ted. Oh, I love that show. Me too. Also so only three seasons. Yeah, totally. Um, Jesus, Ed and I should do an uh, an uh, an episode about shows that only lasted three seasons. Because uh, I was also thinking Something Titus, about, like right right around that time. Yeah. <laughs> well, and interestingly you either enough, find your footing or you don't. That's right. like your. And the five year mark is the magic number for syndication rights. Hmm. So for the artist to make uh, what Jim Ross of the W, formerly of the WWF, then WWE previously the wcw previously the nwa previously <laughs> mid-atlantic the guy has been doing it for a long time now he's in aew anyway what jim ross has always said is he calls it a uh, mailbox money and so for artists to get that mailbox money they got to get to syndication which means you need to get to i believe five seasons i think you need to get over 100 hmm. episodes um, who gets paid in that syndication deal that is it the writer is it the producer the all of the above um so i'll get a little yeah, they, they kind of get um, so a syndication, as I understand it, uh, and geek timers, feel free to jump in and correct me. As I understand it, if if you, Amanda, have uh, sold me um, a, a, a show mm -hmm. and it gets to five seasons, there's often a clause in there about like, OK, when we syndicate it, it's going to be for this amount of money. Mm -hmm. uh, for this many years of syndication for every year that, you know, and then you can renegotiate it because your name is still tied to it or, or, or your, your image is still being used for it. And the result is you get X percentage of that syndication, right? Hmm. So, uh, as I recall, um, it's been a while since I've, you know, studied syndication rights of, of TV shows, you know, but you have studied syndication rights of TV shows at some point. I'm not going to deny that I didn't go down <laughs> several rabbit holes. Um, and remember I do all of this without wine. So, uh, the, the go on yeah, when you said that you had drinks or you had had too much of something during mm -hmm. the quarantine. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the wine. That's the wine for me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was milk for me. I relate. So. I yeah. in just a slightly different way. <laughs> <laughs> so yours is probably healthier for you. Um, actually, they Especially did. A... if you're lactose intolerant. Yeah, that's true. That too. Uh, they did a thing in the 1940s where we rationed milk and cheese um, and the amount of heart attacks and uh, health related diseases went down. Oh, we actually yeah. have the data. <laughs> But we, we ain't looking at it. But we don't it. learn. No. Nope, I mean, nope. cheese is really good. It's so good. So good. So it goes good. really well with wine. Right? I've heard. <laughs> Next time we hang out, you have the wine and the cheese, and I'll just have the cheese. cheese. And yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a fan. It have to be an equitable exchange. Nope. <laughs> nope. I, I, I remember teaching that in uh, my economics uh, classes. <laughs> so... 
so yes uh Good life lessons here <laughs> exactly uh so soap was largely appreciated critically there was plenty of moral objections uh many of which were unfounded or based on what they thought was true based on a newsweek thing mm-hmm. i can <laughs> sympathize um but for the most Not part it was <laughs> uh and to think that they've gotten worse since then um but for the most part it was recognized for what it was it was clever cle- clever Whew. um and, and think of what i would clever. be like it with wine clever. yeah it was clever <laughs> and scathing um so it's clever and scathing of soap operas um which is what it set out to do that's that's the fun part so mission um, accomplished exactly exactly so interestingly, soap got a lot of preemptive hate from conservatives and liberals alike for its depiction of an openly gay character. Now, from conservatives, it was the objection that homosexuality is a sin and therefore not fit for TV. Uh, however, from the international homosexual, uh, no, from the international uh, gay, uh, sorry, the, the, the screen skipped. I have this on an iPad and mm. like if you touch it, it brings down like the heading. Sure, sure. So. From the International Union of Gay Athletes, uh, the fact that Billy Crystal's character, Jody Dallas, was in love with the quarterback for the NFL, who was himself still closeted, represented a nod to the idea that one should stay closeted. Which they've got a point, right? Um, And at the same, it's kind of, I I hesitate to, to make this argument, but when people were criticizing gangster rap in the late sure. 80s, early 90s, because that's when they found out about it. It has existed at least since 85, I believe. But when they were criticizing gangster rap, they said, look, you are you are glorifying uh, shooting people and killing people and stuff sure. like that. You're singing about that and you're giving it voice. And I think that there is an argument, a nuanced argument that can be made along those lines. However, you do need to listen to the response of, no, we're telling you what's going on in our lives. Sure, yeah. And I would fire back with, yes, but you're making money off of this image that you were depicting. You get to, that's fine, but let's let's actually look at the effect as well. Um, and, and we could certainly sit down and have that conversation. Uh, I yeah, think... I mean, that one's just so complicated too, because for right. a lot of those kids, it feels like there's two ways out of their life and it's sports right. or it's rap. <laughs> like... right. You know, uh, yeah, it's 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 I'm not saying that it's a cogent and and slam dunk argument. I am saying, though, that I can see the well-meaning intention behind saying, whoa, hang on a second, you know, Um, and same thing with this. I think that the uh, the International Union of Gay Athletes does have a point that if you depict uh, a a gay specifically a gay man's relationship with another man and that other man is in the closet you are in fact endorsing closeted lifestyles i could also see the argument coming back of like this is our fucking reality yeah which i mean uh, it's only been fairly recent that we've mm-hmm. had an openly gay nfl player right and and he still got a mountain of shit for oh it. for sure yeah I remember so, have that coming, having that conversation with my father when I was a kid, where he's like, "There's no gay football players," and I just laughed because I'm like, "Just statistically, that's impossible." Right, right. Like, just yeah, because math. That's... Yeah. Forty-four guys on a team. Uh, there are oh god, I forget how many teams, but four teams per division. 
so that's <laughs> you know yeah o- you, you, and over time like yeah there there's been some gay football players yes <laughs> yes well same thing with the openly gay basketball player at the tail end of his career and he waited until the tail end of his career and the amount of people are like you know it it's I swear until there is going to be someone who is gay, who is an athlete, who is a top tier athlete mm-hmm. um, in one of the three main sports. It's, it's got to become mainstreamed. Right. It's it's there's this weird thing because people will do all of the mental gymnastics they can mm-hmm. to to find reasons to object to their homosexuality without objecting to their homosexuality. Right. Um, you know, they do the same thing with activism. I don't want to equate these two things, uh, but they do. Uh, they do act the same. The response, the rubber band response to to both is similar. It's along the same vein. It's, uh, you know, Co- Colin Kaepernick, you know, he, he doesn't have a job because he was a system quarterback and someone figured out his system. And if you really look at it that way and I'm like, OK, let's go look at stats right now. And, and I pulled up stats and I was like, he's not the best, but he's also not the worst. He's literally in the middle. Right. And all these other guys got contracts ahead of him. So what the actual shit, what could the difference be? Um, you know, and, and, but it, there's not that all one thing, but it's also right. not, not yeah. well. And I, I'm sorry. I think it is all one thing. I think his activism is what kept him blackballed. Uh, and, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. It's- yeah, but but people who are willing to contort themselves into these arguments, you know, saying, oh, well, here's here's five reasons why it's not because of his activism. And it's like, eh, no, no, you're 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 carrying water for a plantation owner. And I don't know why you're doing that. So <laughs> but but OK, so the the International Union of Gay Athletes pointed out quite rightly, hey, you're depicting a character whose whose lover is in the closet and that is kind of promoting closeted lifestyles. Funny enough to the actor or the guy mm-hmm. that plays Billy Crystal's football player boyfriend uh-huh. um, is an Olympic athlete. No kidding. Yeah. I learned oh. this earlier today. Oh, wow. Um, he was like a, uh, I want to say like marathon runner. I was going to say, wasn't he like a decathlon? He was like a middle Something distance like to long yeah, distance yeah. runner. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't know he was in the Olympics for it. I just I knew that he was apparently. Yeah. Um, So the National Gay Task Force, um, they said they objected preemptively as well because they said uh, having an openly gay character on TV being largely comedic is also its own problem. And Billy Crystal has pointed this out, too. He said, I kind of felt dirty playing that character because I would hear people get laughing about shit that's not supposed to be funny. And we were playing that for laughs. Yeah. And yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of hate to be made there. I think that that is a much more in-depth talk. Honestly, if you ever want to get back into academia, this is where you go. Uh, Like, I I think that's, that's a talk worthy of having. I, I don't feel particularly qualified enough to have it um, all the way out, but I do wanted to, to, to give voice that there were some legit objections from groups about a thing that they were concerned about the problem that i have with it is that it was sight unseen Mm -hmm. and that's uh that's where i i struggle quite a bit um and and i don't think that their objections are unwarranted either i i think they're valid objections but again when you make an objection you have to listen to the response right um and when you make a response you have to listen to the objection i think that both things need to happen 
Um, now, Jody Dallas uh, is often credited as being the first openly gay character on TV. He was not. Um, not on American TV, not in international TV. There had actually been an openly gay character uh, who was a regular character in Australia on a soap opera mm-hmm. in 1972, five years earlier, called Number 96. That was the, the name of the, the soap opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in November of 72, uh, an ABC TV movie called That Certain Summer aired, featuring Hal Holbrook as a gay man living in a stable same-gender couple. He was also the first gay parent played on network TV. Um, That's early. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's Martin Sheen uh, that is his, oh. his life partner. Uh, and Martin Sheen got asked if he thought that uh, at the time uh, that his portrayal of Hal Holbrook's life partner would hurt his career. Uh, he later said, well, I robbed banks and kidnapped children and raped women and murdered people. And now I was going to play a gay guy. And that was like considered a career ender. Uh, Now that's him saying it after, like many years after, and he's got gravitas at that point. Uh, But I I really love that quote. And it, it reminds me of that, that line from uh, Laramie project where, uh, you know, it's like, you didn't mind when I played Hamlet, but, or no, you didn't mind when I played Macbeth but you minded when I played this gay character, like adjust your moral compass accordingly. Yeah. Now one could make the case that the character that Steve uh, and the character, Steve and all in the family, a friend of Archie's uh, was the first gay character on network TV. You could make that argument, but he's a single episode character. Same. You could make that same argument in 1974 on mash. Uh, Single character, single, single episode character again. So there's a couple single episode characters. There's a key, there's a character named Peter Panama from the Corner Bar uh, from ABC, and he preceded Jody Dallas by about five years. Um, but actually, he was called by Rich Wandell, the president of the Gay Activist Alliance, an early advocacy group at the time. He was called quote the worst stereotype of a gay person I've ever seen. <laughs> so there are a lot of gay. Not a lot. There were several gay characters that existed on TV prior to Jody Dallas. Three's Company uh, was certainly setting an example uh, that was a legitimate cause for concern for for gay advocacy groups. Jack Tripper pretended to be gay, and that was a crucial piece of the writing and the whole premise of the show. It's right there in the very first episode. Yeah. Because at the time, here's what's wild. You couldn't have a single man living with two single women in an apartment. And so the, the workaround for that was Janice says, oh, I just told the Ropers that Jack was gay. So now he has to pretend to be gay. Um, and so that was used to comedic effect all the time, playing into all the gay stereotypes. Think of all the looks that Mr. and Mrs. Roper would give to Jack, the way he'd have to play it up. The fact that Jack had a cousin who was a cousin in scare quotes, who was from Texas, who was a manly man. Um, you know, that, that whole episode. Uh, Mr. Furley uh, and all of his reactions to Jack being gay. Uh, now, they never kicked him out of the apartment for $75 a month. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it was clear like he was playing gay, you know, and, and that was yeah. the, the humor of it. So as far as thinking, like it, just a little bit later, too, in the mm-hmm. 80s with like bosom buddies. I was thinking the same. Yeah. Where they show. transvestitism 
specifically. Yeah, yeah, they dressed as women and kind mm-hmm. of like had to live a second life as women so yep. that they could get some kind of discount on housing because they probably lived in New York and that's what you do. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it, now fun thing that you mentioned about that. So back in the 80s landlords had way fucking more power power than than they ever should have. Um and in the 80s it was still kind of a holdover. For instance, my mom could not get certain apartments because she was a single mom with a kid. Me. Hmm. There were certain apartments she just don't even bother to apply. Um, You're not of our... Right. Of our that was in San Francisco in the 80s. Man. Right. Um, so you had that. You had um, in the 80s, You again, you still had like uh, unmarried families or unmarried couples couldn't live together. That was true up through the 90s. Actually, I remember uh, a friend of mine, they had to get a co-signer because she and her boyfriend were living together. Really? In the 90s? Yeah, in the 90s. I lived with my boyfriend in the 90s. Yeah, this was in Concord. I mean, late, late 90s. So it would have been like 98. But Yeah, this was around the same time. Um, Now, I think that there might have been a good financial argument you could make. A very young couple in their early 20s living together. One of them, they could easily break up. One of them could leave. And yeah. we don't want to get left, you know, having to go through an eviction process. So get a cosigner, you know. So I, yeah. okay, okay. I mean, th- there's a good argument to be said about getting an 18-year-old to get a right. cosigner. Right. Regardless of who they're living with. Yeah. And, and I think they're if you 18. make, yeah, if you make that argument that way, but if they had both been males or if they had both been females, I right. don't know if that would have been an argument that would have been brought up. Um, I was also thinking uh, in Bosom Buddies. So you had you had that. Um, you also have um, uh, in the 80s, uh, and because this is you know the podcast that I do all the time, uh, pro wrestling. Um, you mm-hmm. had the character Adrian Adonis in the in the mid-80s and and into the late 80s. And he he was a very fat, gross looking man. Um, and uh, he wore like these faded pink tights and he wore a muumu and he had a, a little talk show called The Flower Shop. And he was very, very, very effeminate. Um, and he pushed the homophobia button really hard. Of course, he was mm. a villain. Uh, so you had, which is really kind of interesting because one of the head bookers of the WWF at the time was Pat Patterson, whose gayness was the worst kept secret in wrestling (laughs) like everyone knew and everyone pretended not to know like it was this weird thing and he's doing the booking and yet this is this is the best they can get for you know this this is what they do with gay characters uh so just wild so in the 70s really only fairly recent in our lifetime that like homosexual characters on television has become normalized like yeah even back when will and grace had their first go round like that was novel yeah it was i i mean i remember when i was in was junior college almost yeah I, I remember when i was in junior college uh the ellen show yeah you know when and they it's had that episode. interesting to see when like the ways in which popular culture can influence society in that way because i yeah. feel like as soon as you you had people who represented a kind of homosexuality that maybe you could be comfortable with. Like it gives you these entry points into it and to, and to seeing. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways uh, the, 
the people who were against having gay representation on TV were actually correct about what mm-hmm. gay representation on TV did. What it would do. It brought yeah. gay people into your living room every week. Yeah. But I like seeing like art drives society versus yes. society driving art. I do too, unless it's pro wrestling, um, in which case it's, it's, oof. <laughs> and there are a mountain of episodes that I've done about that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I find it fascinating that, um, you know, it, it's, it basically, it is a normalizing impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had the same thing with racism too. I mean, Archie totally. Bunker getting kissed by Sammy Davis Jr. And Archie Bunker having to constantly be confronted as the racist that he is. Um, Bill Cosby had some very valid objections to that. Um, cause he's like, Archie never grew. Uh, but, um, you know, at the same time, you know, Carol O'Connor absolutely was very glad to put that stuff on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Carol O'Connor was not Archie, you know? Right. Uh, so, I mean, you, yeah, having representation matters a whole hell of a lot and having normalized representation matters even more, which is what Jody was. Uh, mm-hmm. Jody, Jody Dallas was a positive, fully formed, recurring main storyline gay character. And as one of those, he was one of the first. Um, you know, an interesting side note, uh, though, in, in its fourth season, the Jeffersons had an episode called Once a Friend. Now, this would have been October of 1977. Okay. So right around the beginning of this show. Yeah. Right. Uh, it was an episode that dealt with an openly transgender character. Uh, who refused to be defined as anything but her authentically expressed self. She is no longer Eddie. She is now Edie. Okay. Now, the backstory is that um, I always want to say Thomas Jefferson. No, uh, George Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> he even did an episode where he like dressed up like Thomas Jefferson <laughs> uh, and claimed white heritage and stuff. It was pretty, it was fun and subversive. Um, but. <laughs> so fun. George Jefferson was in the Navy and he he and his friend Eddie were, you know, just pussy slayers when they were in the Navy and and like his buddies in from town. Now, George is with Wheezy now, so he's calmed down some, but he's going to throw back a couple brews with his buddy, relive their old glory days verbally, not in actuality. Um, And he goes expecting to meet Eddie. And he meets Edie. And so you can imagine the farcical Ooh, aspects yeah, of this, yeah, the, yeah. the, you know, mistaken identities, the, this, the, that, the other, the humor more really comes from, um, did I say Wheezy? Yeah. Wheezy. Yeah. Uh, Cause her real name, her full name was Louise. Hence the Wheezy. Yeah. Um, it comes from Wheezy, Louise, uh, thinking that George is having an affair with a woman and using the, I'm meeting an old friend from, from the Navy as an excuse when in fact, the friend that he is meeting from the Navy is now a woman. Uh-huh. So that, you know, it's your standard sitcom, three levels of yeah. ridiculous that frankly would take three if, minutes to explain. If we all just communicated with each other, like this could right. be resolved yeah. real quick. But yeah. But it's a sitcom, uh, so we need it to take 23 minutes. Exactly. And we need people to immediately jump to conclusions about life partners mm-hmm. that they've known their entire lives, you know, but it's so it's but it's it's interesting where they go with it. Um, and what I what I found interesting about it also is that you're talking about two black men. Well, one black woman and one black man now um, because it's Edie, not Eddie. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this 
okay, but you'll still be Eddie to me kind of vibe that George is trying to put across. And Edie's like, no, no, this is who <laughs> I am. And what I find fascinating there is this, there is an unwillingness to compromise on your declared identity when you have actually declared your identity. Mm-hmm. And what I find is interesting about that is that we saw Roots on TV in the 1970s. And there's a scene where they're whipping him and telling him to take his name. And he keeps saying Kunta Kinte. Mm-hmm. And then he finally says Toby because, I mean, it's a fucking whip and it's, it's torturous Ow. pain. Yeah. You're going to break eventually. And then he runs away several times, gets his cut, foot cut off and all kinds of stuff. But like that refusal to identify as anything other than your authentic self, specifically from a black character. Mm-hmm. I found that especially interesting because of the 1970s. It's you have the switching from colored to black right? and to Afro-American. And, oh, you must have called me Roy because I know you didn't say boy. Mm-hmm. That and like I refuse to take your identity that yeah. you're ascribing to is, me. There is a newly emerging mm-hmm. black identity that yes is yeah. And I think that having a transgender character, specifically a black transgender character, refusing to compromise on his identity, I, th- I find that fascinating. Um, I don't think you would have seen that in a white character. I think mm-hmm. you would have seen a little bit more. I'm going to use the word reconciliation between the two worlds in that character if he were white or if she were white mm-hmm. um and so I, I just i think there's a very specific vibe going on there uh and you you know there's there's you know like what we did in our episodes about uh zombies um you know george romero accidentally started up a whole bunch of race issues well he didn't start up race issues he started a critique of race issues almost entirely by accident he just mm-hmm. casted the best actor that he thought could do the role but that the character who was the main character in night of the living dead was black and suddenly everything has weight to it that it probably wouldn't have if he just casted you know a gawky redhead or something yes you made me want to go back and watch the zombie or yeah the zombie episodes oh yeah yeah well there's 10 of them dive in fuck (laughs) i was broken after those um (laughs) there's a reason i did a wilhelm scream episode which i still maintain is a good one But so you have this comedy of errors happening in 1977 in October on the Jeffersons. Now, it doesn't reach the friends level of gay and trans panic um, (laughs) because, man, I was watching Friends the first season um, and every other joke was gay panic. Oh, my God. I I have that same experience, too, because that that show in so many ways has Mm -hmm. aged really well. Like the humor has really held up. Sure. Except yes it's it's like a real big caveat there like and then it doesn't seem like it was that long ago right because it was in our lifetime it was only 10 years ago right yeah that things (laughs) perpetually only 10 years ago it's always only 10 years ago no matter what age i am yep (laughs) Yep. years ago um but you like we really have societally come a very long way in a very short period of time and you get to kind of experience yeah. it when you rewatch those shows and you realize like how out of tone that is now yeah and you're like oh thank god yeah <laughs> and i'm, we're, I'm we're do- at least doing something better yeah we're, we're growing in some ways and and again i think yeah. that that growth through art through nightly television is is a really important growth yeah 
So, yeah. So, I mean, here you've got this night, this character in the late 1970s who is transgender, uh, who seems to have had gender confirmation surgery, uh, who refused to be defined other than her own identity. Um, and she didn't compromise. Um, and I just, I think that's really interesting that that comes out. Soap is getting all the fire. Um, but that comes out in the same year that soap gets started. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, soap, soap was definitely groundbreaking in the 1970s in its inclusion of a fully formed, not played for gay panic laughs, gay main character of a TV series. Uh, and culturally it makes a lot of sense at the time, given the burgeoning inclusion of queer characters, queer issues, queer tropes in the 1970s. However, it also makes sense given the backlash the queer community was seeing prior to Reagan getting into office. Now, once Reagan gets into office, it's it's a goddamn un unmitigated disaster. This is what happens when you put somebody who, frankly, is known for image management more than he's known for governance. Like, I mean, thank God we learned from that. We never did it again. Uh, <laughs> but could you imagine if we'd done something like that, what kind of egregious human horrible. rights? Right. Uh, you know, what kind of human rights violations we would have or like you know think if there was like another plague that happened you know and and they did nothing about it and so you have an entire vulnerable population and then assailed minimized by it. it and made it seem like it was a xenophobic kind of issue and, yeah i mean thank god we didn't do ugh. that <laughs> oh. narrowly escaped exactly oh man those emails must have been really bad <laughs> so <laughs> There were several people who were chomping at the bit to make sure that queer equality and re queer representation was not allowed on the air. By 1977, not just on the air, everywhere. By 1977, a bevy of the same people who would make up the moral majority a few years later and bring in an actor into office to defeat a deacon in a Southern Baptist congregation incumbent president were lining up to oppose all the things that were gay. Jesse Helms, Jerry Falwell, Anita Bryant, all of them jumped in. By 1977, nearly 40 major cities had ordinances on the books to stop harassing gay folks. That's fucking progress. Yeah. Anita Bryant had a friend who was married to her, Anita's, a talent agent named Ruth Shack. Ruth Shack was the Metro Dade County Commissioner. She proposed a similar ordinance in Miami Dade County. It was suggested in December of 76 and her husband's client, her husband's client, Anita Bryant, <laughs> a former Miss America, a current pop singer and endorser of oranges, uh, <laughs> a, a, an endorser of Tupperware and an endorser of Coca-Cola, took issue with an ordinance in a city that she didn't live in that her talent agent's wife was endorsing. Now, spun up by her church, Anita Bryant began in earnest trying to undo what she saw her friend doing, giving gay folks protection from discrimination. Anita Bryant claimed as it was coming to a city council vote that, quote, the ordinance condones immorality and discriminates against my children's rights to grow up in a healthy, decent community. The hmm. ordinance passed. And this became the lightning rod that led to Reagan's staunch support from a large swath of Americans. This moment, I think, created uh, what I think was on many levels a grift. On many other levels, there were severely sincere folks who thought that gays having protection from persecution would lead to the ruination of America and anger, really, really anger white Jesus to the point where he might not rapture them. 
<laughs> but ultimately, this really does feel like a very standard grift to me. Anita Bryant helped to start the organization called Save Our Children. Okay. And like most grifts, it's stupid. Because as soon as they started Save Our Children, they got sued by Save the Children in June of 1977. Because Save the Children was a charitable group in Connecticut that lost donation monies due to Anita, Anita Bryant's use of the same name in her book that she published that year. Mm. Oh. Uh, as well as this organization's attack on people. So yeah, Anita Bryant definitely made sure that she was going to write a book that year too. And I'm not going to name it here because fuck her. But rest assured... The previously innocuous ordinance that was finally reversing some of the injustices done against a marginalized community became the lightning rod for those who would center themselves and their virtues in the public square the second that anyone gets less oppressed than they had been during these people's formative years. Just like you said, you know, we we grew up with friends. We grew up with um we well, we grew up in the 80s too so we grew up yeah. with you know a lot of 80s tv shows as well twilight zone you and i were both made weird yeah. by that um so but that <laughs> sets our idea of normal fully formed humans that we are right now. <laughs> exactly uh but that sets our idea of normal so if your idea of normal is the gays getting oppressed then man that's you know that's rough to have to see them not get as oppressed i guess um <laughs> and this this isn't even an issue of like equality feels like oppression when you're privileged type stuff. No, this is we used to codify their apartheid status. Those were the good old days. Like, <laughs> so the Save Our Children campaign paid for local commercial spots during the Orange Bowl parade. Now, the Orange Bowl is the second oldest bowl game in the United States. Um, Anita Bryant was the, the host that year. What's that? I was just curious. Is the Rose Bowl the oldest? Yes. Yeah, it goes rose, orange, and then I think sugar and cotton are pretty close, which mm. can can we just point out that all these bowl games are happening on fields that are owned by white people where black people do a majority of the physical labor and they're named after the same thing for which black people were kidnapped and brought over to the United States and the same locations made to work in fields for the benefit of so you think it's problematic a little bit a little bit okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah that's why i was cool when they changed it to like the fiesta bowl and the nacho bowl and, and <laughs> they like start branding like, it yeah i'm like okay good sponsors. good let's you know let's not be okay with it being that obvious although yeah. then it's more insidious so but okay so on january 1st anita bryant and january 1st 1977 soap doesn't air until uh september um, January 1st, 1977, Anita Bryant is hosting the Orange Bowl Parade. And on that same day, her book comes out. So all of this is even predating the March pre-release of Soap, right? And there were commercials that were bought during the parade. Now, 1977 is only a few years removed from Heidi preempting the Super Bowl on TV. So, you know, it's, it's, sports is still kind of like, oh, yeah, that's also on kind of thing. Uh -huh. It's not the national religion just yet. Um, now those commercials showed become this, the national religion. Um, I want to say it was in the 1980s. Uh, so I know that it really got stepped up when the Niners were winning. So 89 was a really big one. When it got stepped up in my life, I just wasn't sure if that was like everybody's life. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. Cause I mean, I was a huge Niners fan living in Florida. So, uh, <laughs> But um, yeah, and so all of this, uh, like I said, predates soap. 
So the commercials, uh, they show the SF Pride Parade's most outlandish displays, the leather daddies, the drag queens, Asher. the men kissing, the topless women. Um, and then it accused Miami queer folk of trying to turn Miami into San Francisco, a veritable, quote, hotbed of homosexuality. <laughs> sounds like fun. Um, they also ran a, a full bed. page. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it is Miami. <laughs> They also ran a full page ad in the Miami Herald swearing up and down that gays would lead to child prostitution, teachers and students having sex, the gays being in the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. Oh, no. I, like Either they knew that that was already going on and they were trying to capitalize on the panic of the people it's who did a weird thing to like. Zero yeah. In on. Yeah. Um, or they were we'll just get to our children. Right. Well, and, and they even made the argument that, you know, um, gay people don't have kids because they're gay. So they have to teach other people to gay. It's like, <laughs> That's how they procreate. <laughs> right. <laughs> like basically like Osiris, you know, yes. <laughs> so, sprinkle a little bit of them. Everywhere. Yeah. You know, oh. let's not get into what a tomb had to do. So <laughs> uh, it's another tab on my my. Uh, browser um but at the bottom was the tagline quote are all homosexuals nice there is no human right to corrupt our children what? that was run in a fucking newspaper and centered in this fight is grifter extraordinaire anita bryant i'm gonna call her a grifter i think she was a true grifter i think she believed her own bullshit but i think ultimately it was a grift and the shit that she said was the reddest of red meat to the Florida and national grifters using righteous indignation as part of their grift. Here's some quotes from her. Quote, what these people really want, hidden behind obscure legal phrases, is the legal right to propose to our children that theirs is an acceptable alternate way of life. I will lead such a crusade to stop it as this country has not seen before. Now, in all fairness, she is partly right. Other grifters had come and gone, but her efforts definitely stuck and led to all sorts of legislative <laughs> re restrictions. She had the staying power. She did. Uh, I like that that sounds like stain power as well, because <laughs> she is a fucking stain on Florida. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> the bar is so, so low. So low. So low. Um, and it's it's like Florida just completely misses the irony of the fact that their state is shaped like a penis too. Like they just, <laughs> God damn it! Um, it would be like if Michigan went off on like corporal punishment. <laughs> it looks like a hand, like. But anyway, uh, Florida then banned gay adoption that same year, based largely on arguments that she made imagining panic into existence about child molestation. She said, quote, as a mother, I know that homosexuals cannot biologically reproduce children. Therefore, they must recruit our children. <laughs> I hope to hell that she didn't have any gay children because that would have been awful for them. Like, uh, it, oh, my God. That, Yeah. Yeah. And that brought up the adoption ban and it came into being as a fucking result. There's a pretty straight line to draw here, too. She had a book to sell, a moral outrage to gin up about people being less targeted, mm -hmm. and the public grew to meet that call. Quote, 
If the gays are granted rights, next we'll have to give rights to prostitutes and to people who sleep with St. Bernard's and to nail biters. Yes, yes. You have to give human rights to all the humans. <laughs> right. But then she goes, and then she does this weird, like, step one, step what? Like, she, like. But that's always, it's always, there's always oh, yeah. a slippery slope kind of argument. Straight that's to happening. bestiality. Yeah. <laughs> right. But okay. So I've seen that before, right? But then to scoop out of bestiality and go and also nail biters <laughs> the fuck <laughs> what like how is that those aren't what how <laughs> it's <sighs> she's casting a really wide net just um, remember damien you can't logic with crazy this is true this is true and apparently crazy doesn't go in ascending order either or she <laughs> genuinely thinks that nail biting is far worse than fucking a saint bernard or in fairness getting fucked by a St. Bernard. <laughs> I wonder if it's breed specific. I like, hope so. I, like, I, I, I hope that like, there's like, where's an, the St. Bernard versus the Chihuahua in this? I scale. was thinking dachshund, you know, but <laughs> it all really looks like a fleshlight. So sure, yeah. yeah. Just, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Badger dog, you know, <laughs> um, so do you, uh, this is the same boilerplate shit through this night, through 1977 from her and her, her supporters. Um, now come back to soap and let's recall that internal memo together in order to treat Jody as a gay character. His portrayal must at all times be handled without limp-wristed actions. The relationship between Jody and the football player should be handled in such a manner that explicitly or in, that explicit or intimate aspects of homosexuality are avoided entirely. There was a lot of social capital spent on keeping gay representation off of TV, and it definitely led to an effort within the network to do so. Luckily for us, Soap largely ignored those suggestions, as often happens when network <laughs> censors. Now, here's a fun fact about grifter Anita Bryant. Um, in 1980, she softened her stance. It might have been the pie in the face in October of 1977. Have you seen video of her getting pied in the face? No, I have not. She's one of the first people to be politically pied. Ah, and I love it. Beautiful. Um, although, and, and, and she has a quip. Now it is a homophobic fucked up quip, but it's not unclever either. Okay. Uh, she does say, well, of course it was a fruit pie. Oh, points, yeah, Anita, know. points. All right. <laughs> I can't say it's you know. not funny. <laughs> right. You know, it shouldn't be. But, I'm being uh, recorded and I was laughed out loud. I couldn't yeah, help it. So. Yeah. So, you know, but she's still an asshole. Um, she's still an asshole. It might have also been that her marriage was abusive and she was castigated by Assholes the Assholes are frequently funny, though. So That's yeah. true. That's very true. Uh, so, so it could have been the pie. Three years later, in 80, she softens her, her stance. Or it could have been the fact that her marriage was actually pretty awful and abusive, and she was castigated by the same institutions whom she courted seeking. Uh, she, she courted because she sought a divorce. Um, she said in 1980, and ugh, fucking conservatives, until it applies to them, they can't see through to oh, like course. another person. <laughs> and I do mean empathy, conservatives. Empathy is not part of the platform. No, no. And I, you know what? I would actually, this is where Ed would, would, go on for a little bit and rightly so that conservatives actually are pretty chill about what you do in your own bedroom um long as it's two consenting adults it's it's people who put on the cloak of conservatism for their own grift mm. um and i I'll, I'll go with that um but she 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 says quote i'm more inclined to say live and let live 
about gay people. See progress. Um, and then she says, just don't flaunt it or try to legalize it. <laughs> oh, okay. So you're so, so close. Uh, so hopeful. So uh, kept scrolling. After all, in 1977, <laughs> she took her stance, quote, not out of homophobia, but out of love for them. But sometimes I, mean, I think about like, what would it be like if this person was alive now and had a Twitter account? <laughs> I think we see that with J.K. Rowling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. Eh. Yep. Um, checks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, she did get protection in West Virginia. Uh, because gays in West Virginia were coming for her really hard, um, but. <laughs> she got protection from uh, a little group you might might recognize uh as the kkk mm -hmm. so she got new fans i guess i don't, I don't. anyway so uh, the, the bryant campaign successes nationwide and repeal uh in and the effort to repeal legal protections against discrimination against gay folk are startling and really prophetic actually because active voters who wanted to hurt a marginalized group turned out in droves they were energized by charismatic figurehead. The liberal majority, and it is a majority, who didn't think such discrimination should exist, ultimately didn't get out to vote because they didn't care enough. Yeah. Polls after the fact in Eugene, Oregon, for instance, really highlight this failure of liberals to protect a marginalized group because their own apathy stood stronger in the face of oppressive exuberance than their willingness to actually take care of the groups that need protection. Basically, it didn't apply to them, so they didn't show up. So here I am cast, you know, dissing conservatives or faux conservatives for like, well, if it doesn't happen to me, it doesn't matter. Liberals were just as bad at yeah. this. There's a, a probably lots of people are aware of Brene Brown, an author who uh, she's a researcher who focuses on shame and vulnerability mm. um but she in one of her books talks about how it's one thing to have values it's another thing to live in your values it's, you can profess your values mm -hmm. or you can enact them day to day and that just reminds me of that yeah yeah absolutely um i think there's there's profess your liberal values but not showing up in them not showing up to yeah, I mean, it's it's performative. Yeah, it's the it's the people who, you know, they take a Insta picture or mm -hmm. they'll they'll post a black screen right. once and see I, I did something and it's like, did you even shop activist. at a black owned business? Like, <laughs> you know, my, one of my favorite pictures is there's uh, these gals and it, it I have to trade carefully here because I don't want to be misogynistic in this critique, but there's these these white gals in pussy hats. Mm -hmm. um posing they're standing up they've elevated themselves they're posed they're standing on top of like some sort of center divider kind of thing and they're posing and taking a picture of themselves and setting standing below them on the street level is a black woman with a sign uh and and it's something like uh white women put trump in power or something like that i forget exactly what's on the sign but what i what i found <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> Uh, but what I found so, so striking about the picture was the fact that these white women had to have elevated themselves mm -hmm. to stand up there. And they're taking a picture, whereas this black woman is there on the ground 
and she's actually actively participating, not just right with symbolism. Yes. <laughs> it's a fun one. Yeah. So remember, Bryant's book and efforts in uh, Miami stepped into the spotlight in January 77. The pre-screening is not going to happen until March. And conservatives ignored the actual facts of the show and pushed hard to get it banned from TV before it ever made the air. These two things, I think, are intrinsically linked. And the show's success gave another cultural touch, touchstone for the campaigns of what would later become the moral majority to point to and strengthen their base. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the moral majority. Are you aware of uh, this group? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Jerry Falwell and Paul Weirich started the moral majority in June of 1979. Now, by this point, soap was on Thursdays at 930. Now, remember, it was broadly a parody of soap operas. So the amount of ridiculous plot points and plot lines was manifestly a part of the show. Right. <laughs> Interestingly, right as the moral majority was starting up, soap was winding up its exorcism plot line, as well as dealing with the cult, the UFOs, and its final season. Or, or not in its final season. It's a season finale. In season three. Yeah, yeah season three is around the time the show is going to go off the rails you know yes like <laughs> but again is it really off the rails when it's parodying shows that went off the fucking rails you know you know it's yeah yeah you can't really tell exactly which direction the influence is flowing at that yeah point. that's like, true that's true and being which i don't know the thing that you pretend is the thing that you become too mm -hmm. so so in season three december 27th 1980 Okay, so the election has happened. Mm -hmm. Inauguration is not. Jody has to deal with the anti-gay housing issues, having to pretend that the baby is his own daughter and not that he's a single gay man raising a child. His being gay is clearly at the center of his problem. And there's there's a wonderful interaction that he has with the social worker. And at one point, she even says, are you a practicing homosexual? He says, no, I don't have to practice. I'm very good at it, um, <laughs> which is played for enormous laughs. And it's a good line. It's a very good line. Um, and she's a like black Crystal. social worker. Yeah, she's a black social worker. At one point, she says, you're looking very pale. And he says, so are you. You know, so like there's, <laughs> there's a lot of shit going on. There's a lot packed into that scene. But um, and she's a social worker and she's assessing the health of the child because living with a gay um now a few episodes can, later i know it's so weird born, basically right yeah <laughs> uh now a few episodes later jody is giving real relationship advice to billy he is a fully rounded person with a love life with advice to give with perspective that others take into account and his status as a queer person is central to his identity identity as a character but it is not the sole defining feature and nor is it really played for laughs by the time the moral majority gets off the ground. So they're a little late to the party. And in many ways, this helps them to make their argument because they're like, look, they're sneaking it in on you. Um, at this time, more and more of the continued criticism centers on Jody more than anything else in the show. And there was far less concern over their excoriating of the rich anymore which was a, a thing in the beginning. Like they make yeah. too much fun of the rich. It's like, Oh, <laughs> however, there was also some shade that was thrown over the way that they lampooned anti-communist activities, marital infidelity, sexuality in general, both the unfaithful I mean, kind and the faithful they lampooned kind. anything. So. Yeah. 
uh, as one of the Tate daughters fell in love with a priest. Mm -hmm. Now, by the end of the series, the decline in ratings was measurable. Soap had started at 13th and had gone down to 25th. Actually, I think it started at 14th, jumped up to 13th and then dropped down to 25th in two years. Now, it's still one of the top 25 shows. That's not awful. No. But during the 1980-81 season, Soap dropped to 46th. It was not renewed. It left the cliffhanger as an actual cliffhanger. Now, the network cited low ratings as its reason. And this makes plenty of sense from the corporate network perspective. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But why those ratings dropped is worth a few looks. So first, I'm going to say it wasn't the writing. The whole point of the show was to be over the top. Now, having said that, I, I am going to say it could be a layer of fatigue that sets in that you normally see with parody. Think of mm -hmm. any movie that's a parody. They're all on the short side. Right. They're all a series of really good bits strung together by a loose plot. Mm -hmm. And almost none of them end with any kind of coherent ending worthy of the rest of the movie. Yeah. I think that's a fatigue that happens with parody. Get Smart is a good example. Um, at a to, I was struggling to think yeah. of like very many good examples. Mm-hmm. Of, of TV shows specifically of that are TV show, Yeah, like right. a, in movies, I could think of a bunch of them. But sure. Like Mel Brooks. Right. But end. name a Mel Brooks uh, movie that has a good ending. No, yeah. It's, yeah. it's all pretty unresolved. <laughs> yep. Because there's no there there. Yeah. I mean, the so, plot is never the point. Right. The plot carries and, you through from bit to bit. And then in the same way that this show starts with like a a Bible where it's like a deep dive into all the characters, but not right. necessarily the details of what's going to happen to those characters. Like mm -hmm. even in its conceptualization, the show wasn't about the plot. The plot was circumstantial. Exactly. I mean, she even said it was a modular plot. You could yeah. move shit around as you saw yeah. fit. And, and she liked she, that. Yeah. That's, that's the framework that she wanted to play in. Yeah. Which she gets to. That's, that's yeah. great. But it also means that your show is going to have a time limit. Yeah, because you, then you also yeah. don't, you don't have like the big meta narrative that keeps people invested. And yeah, I watched longevity. Lost all the way to the end. It wasn't oh, well. for the quality. <laughs> it was for the it plot. I wanted to see it wrap and up. Then... Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a strike because the studios refused to pay writers for DVD rights, um, and that that killed it. Like it, that was second season um, and third season. Same thing with Heroes. But like I watched them all the way to the end because of the plot, not because it was bits strung together, you know? Right. But so at, at a different time and place in our culture, there was a TV show called Get Smart. Now it had lasted five seasons and that's only one more than Soap did. Uh, but it was a very different country from 1965 to 1970 than it was from 77 to 82. Police Squad came out in 82 and it lasted just a few episodes. I want to say six episodes. When a parody doesn't grow into something else, it seems to have a shelf life of around four to five years, quite honestly. But I also think ultimately that the culture shifted out from under soap. Here's an example. Uh, Dallas and the Dukes of Hazard were rated numbers one and two in 1980 to 81. Both were beyond their pilot season. Both were settling into their grooves culturally. Magnum PI was number 14. In its pilot and in its pilot season. And I bring that up because that's where soap entered in. Too Close mm -hmm. for Comfort was number 15. 
Uh, that later became the Ted Knight Show. You might mm. remember. It was yeah. set in San Francisco. So I love the Ted Knight Show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with, uh, oh, God, what was his name? Not Joey Suzu. I think he was in it, too, though. But there's another guy in it. Uh, oh. The one who was gay. Ah, well, oh. I'll, I'll come up with it later. Um, Facts of Life came in at 26, and it was in its sophomore season. So we are now starting to see Charlotte Ray's breasts, you know, the jiggly. We <laughs> uh, don't want to get away from that. <laughs> no. Kenya, though. Um, They're jiggly. Yes. Bless her for it. Uh, now, these several shows bespeak a lot about American culture when it comes to television. Dallas and the Dukes of Hazard were very white, very heteronormative and Southern. Now, there are different <laughs> kinds of Southern, but they were Southern. Um, one was just a soap opera-esque as soap, and the other one was pretty zany and broad-based in its humor. Yeah. So they both had aspects of what soap was doing, but neither was subversive. But on, like, opposite sides of the spectrum. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and you could say that Dukes of Hazzard was technically subversive, because they're just the good old boys, been in trouble with the law since the day they were born, but they're clearly, you no know... Harm. Yeah, exactly. But the law is really the problem in that one, and... I, I don't think Dukes of Hazard, you could say, is really all that subversive, to be perfectly honest, because no. it's playing to that borderlander mentality. But really, both of them are affirming Reaganism as it's growing in 1980 mm. and 81 and the shift rightward that happened as a result. And I think it's that shift, the victory of the same people who were against soap on a cultural level, that that was the end, the abrupt end of soap was because Ronald Reagan got inaugurated in January of 1981, January 20th. Hmm. April 20th, soap goes off the air and never comes back. With Reagan comes the new era, and it, the networks reacted. There was so much more action on TV all of a sudden. Fall Guy, Magnum P.I., Hill Street Blues, Strike Force, hmm. Dukes of Hazard, Simon & Simon, T.J. Hooker, March of 1982. More rich people, too. Dallas, Heart to Heart, Dynasty, Facts of Life, Knott's Landing, Falcon Crest, Fantasy Island, way less subversion. Those that were subversive were absolutely fading out of a very crowded uh, week. Um, the Jeffersons is on its way out. Alice is on its way down. WKRP is, is hmm. all but gone. Reagan was categorically quiet on the upcoming AIDS crisis, too. He slashed the budget for the National Endowment of the Humanities by half. Culturally, he was very conservative. I mean, he used to bring albums of him recording stuff talking about uh, the evils of communism to parties. He's, he's a, <laughs> he sounds like a blast. I would definitely invite that guy. Right? I mean, whew, pussy magnet. Um, <laughs> and uh, he focused instead on this idea of American patriotism and optimism for the middle and upper classes. And he came into office during an election in which only 52% of the electorate came out which was the lowest amount of people who voted since 1948. Wow. But televangelists were definitely on the rise after Reagan came in. Sure. Uh, until scandals brought them lower in the mid-1980s anyway. It might have had to do with the fact that the FCC was being allowed to take money for religious broadcasts for the first time, hmm. which opens up the for-profit profits in earnest. Uh, that reads much better than it looks because profits <laughs> is spelled differently. Anyway, uh, 
but it might have had to do with the advent of cable television and national second tier networks like tbs stuff Mm -hmm. like that either way the shift in television didn't augur well for soap and the people who'd opposed it on a cultural level were now in power making the rules anthony thomopoulos was in charge of abc during the show's tenure and he had a very hard line stance on quick cancellations of shows that required attention He didn't like a show that he had to pay attention to. (laughs) Now, I don't mean mentally as in like, oh, this is a very engaging show. I mean, where he had to actually step in and mediate things and stuff like that. Um, He also had a a really uh, hard stance on uh, stars and being tough on them with their contracts. Um, I'm trying to remember if it was him that uh, got rid of Valerie Harper um, and turned it into the Hogan family. Uh huh. Um, that might have been Lewis Ehrlich who came after him. Uh, but there was somebody else. It might have been somebody else that he just negotiated real hardball with and basically forced them out. Um, after him, Lewis Ehrlich took over, and by 1983, the move toward more detective shows uh, on ABC was in, and shows with Shetland Blackmen uh was shetland blackman yeah webster and uh different strokes short black guys uh there's this interesting thing that (laughs) shetland um (laughs) it is interesting to me that you had two shows at 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 the same time i mean there's some overlap where you have a short black man who is telling the truth in a comedic way Mm -hmm. but his physical stature is short and you wonder like if there was some world in which those two ideas developed independent of each other, like right. how pissed off are those showrunners? You're like, right. you motherfucker. Like, Another? <laughs> how but, the hell? <laughs> <laughs> but also the fact that you've, you've got this, you know, charismatic, sarcastic, tells it like it is black person telling you things, but he's also short. I think that that physical stature aspect. It, it could, because the, Mm-hmm. it's very easy to discount short people like you yes. don't expect a lot so you've automatically lowered your expectations right and then he has this spunky little personality and so right. <laughs> so so it's kind it's, of written off as like well that's spunky you know and yeah yeah but it's it's like a very like trying to create that dichotomy that tension between like i think it also small package big personality yeah and, but I also think it makes them sexless, ultimately, um, true. and That's and true. it takes away the virility of of their observations, um, yeah. neuters them on some level. So, but anyway, so the the the, the the results um, of this uh, was that uh, people, how to put this, people learn their lessons from soap. Um, <laughs> people who oppose soap learn their lessons from it. Uh, and they were definitely made part of the standard playbook now, these lessons that they learned. Uh, moral grifters who sought to control as much as they could knew here's what we can use as our boogeyman. Um, and they made normal their values. They normalized their values so that much of their efforts was much more about reinforcing those values that are now entrenched and hunting down more and more obscure boogeymen too. And the results were manifest. The desire for subversive shows, parody or otherwise, was backburnered or muted until after Reagan left office. It wouldn't be until the scandals of the mid-1980s and their fallouts, 
for instance, Iran-Contra, um, and the extreme rightward shift of, uh, of things that occurred throughout Reagan's two terms, then until anyone, you know, it, it's not until that, that anyone finds commercial success confronting the culture with comedy for anything more than a very special episode and with whole and complete depiction of marginalized folks. Roseanne yeah. starts in 1989. And look how that ended. Yeah, well, and that's a whole nother episode that I really do want to explore because yeah, you probably should. Oh, it's 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 the tragedy of the contrarian, um, and also fuck her because she's an adult and she's responsible for her own shit. Um, but in '89, she's incredibly subversive, Mm -hmm. putting poor people on TV, um, having people. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to see that. But that's after Reagan leaves leaves office. Um, now, except for the Golden Girls, which definitely in 1985, I want to say Golden Girls got started and it definitely was subversive, but it was subversive because with old ladies, it was layered in um, and all four characters were very strong. And the show, as a result, was able to speak very plainly on several topics while still steeping it in humor. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the exception of the Golden Girls, pretty much the cancellation of soap meant that those who had opposed soap had found the playbook that worked now they just have to replicate it mm -hmm. and they kept replicating it and they normalized their shit to the point where you don't even bother anymore with the exception of the golden girls and i keep bringing them up uh because they're like the standout yeah well guess 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 what the the fun connection there is no, what? You know who created the Golden Girls? Susan Harris. Really? Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. And so remember towards her now. Yeah. And she had <laughs> written for B. Arthur for Maud. Huh. She's kind of a badass, huh? She's a badass, dude. <laughs> like she really is. <laughs> so that's that's pretty much where the story of soap ends. I mean, it it did end, um, and the the right did win. Um, and the tactics that they learned in, in trying to get rid of soap were the tactics that they employed to make it so that another show like that would never happen. And so that they could elect all kinds of terrible people to enact their, their hypocrisies. <laughs> so, bunch so. of dickbags. Yes, yes. So uh, aside from a bunch of dickbags and that pouty look <laughs> on your face, uh, have you gleaned anything? Yes, I have. I've do tell gleaned quite a bit about. Um, I know we talked about in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Got a little bit more of like the Susan Harris biography and like understanding her as a person and starting to understand the social movements that were going into it. But in this episode, I feel like I really understood the connection specifically to Reagan and these very specific pivots in um in culture and this the reaction that often happens uh when people get uncomfortable yeah and they got uncomfortable over a modicum of reversal of oppression like yeah yeah i mean there there you go 
That's, uh... But I also learned that the same person that made soap made Golden Girls, and I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. And that and gives me a trajectory because obviously I'm not a quitter. So I started watching soap in preparation for us mm -hmm. chatting. So I'm clearly going to have to watch it through to the end. And yes. now I know what my next steps are going to be. And I just made this mental connection mm -hmm. that the actor that plays um, Mary's husband, Bert. Yep. Bert Campbell. Bert. Yes. Um, that he goes on to uh -huh. star in uh -huh. Empty Nest, which, which is, is a, a spinoff spin of golden girls which yes. is it's just all full circle for me right oh, now. oh yeah yeah so you're gonna go to well and empty yeah, nest I've got is like, like the next year of my life plan, so. <laughs> empty nest is unfortunately the safe cousin of the golden girls yeah, like, yeah it is nowhere near as it, it does have it's it's got like the 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 subversive infrastructure and it doesn't do anything with it yeah it's just kind of like i don't know it's the gold retriever of shows mm -hmm. like it's yeah. just like oh funny just like it that's good because like it's cuddly <laughs> well and that's the 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 dog in that is yes, it golden yes. retriever, so. <laughs> but it's like the perfect dog for that film. yeah you know it just yeah it all is works because like the this there's the two sisters living with mm -hmm. them and i mean you've got all kinds of like reversal of fortune issues that come up and and you've got the one sister but yeah they're not they they don't dig into it it's just right. like incidental right and maybe that's the point like maybe that's how you actually normalize things is you don't call attention to it. You just make it part of the scenery. Yeah. I just, no fault divorces were so recent. Like, you know, um, it, they normalize it in the same way that full house normalized moms dying. Mm. I, I don't think that that's a good normalization. I think that's a, you use it as a plot device to make it go. Sure. You know, and I, I think that you could have fleshed a lot of that stuff out, had those characters because it's not like they don't date too. you know, they do. Right. And, and you could have had those characters do that. Oh, and Joey Sousa's in that. It one. just wasn't the story yeah. that they were. Right. Interested in telling, I guess. Yeah. It's just the story they were interested in telling was really milk toast too. Like, yeah, it was I, vanilla for sure. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I dated a gal who, um, she would have the TV on and there's a channel up here. Um, that is i don't know what the station is um but she got network tv um and uh, i'd come over for you know coffee in the morning before i'd go off to work mm. and that show would be on um it was that show it was like spin city and i was always bummed because it would be like coming up next is night court i'm like god damn it can they switch it <laughs> but, it would really work better in my schedule if yeah <laughs> but like so she and i would you know we'd watch part of an episode and i'd ask her all kinds of questions she grew up watching the show mm -hmm. um but uh but yeah it was it was i was struck by how harmless the show was mm -hmm. i guess i just i want a little bit more jabby in the eye kind of you know yeah. so but yeah you could you could absolutely go from well and that's the 1980s effect ultimately mm -hmm. of golden girl or of soap to golden girls so soap it's in your face golden girls we did some clever writing you still have to deal yeah. with it and it's then we like can the yeah, the refractory period is yeah messed, so totally yeah <laughs> well cool uh dude thank you so much for for doing this with this me was this so was so fun i'm so glad fun cool if i if i have stuff that deals with ancient art and stuff we'll we'll have you back on or there Hey, there, we, we might have to make the Batman the animated. Oh, series yes. That absolutely. 
you uh, you have a lot of research to do for I, that. I, I'll have to do the heavy lifting on that. So yes, you know. Yeah. Well, so luckily, listening audience, please don't expect that anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do, remember she's even more an academic than I. Yeah, so she's it'll be super geeky. Yeah. Oh, that'll be cool. <laughs> uh, it'll be good to take a take a hour off. So <laughs> just pass so, the mic, buddy. Yeah. Um, I'll just throw in a few Batman puns. It'll be good. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So is there any uh, books that you would want to recommend to us this time around? So, you know, what I've been reading lately is um, The Haunting of Hill House, which uh, has fairly recently been. Uh, so the, the original novel is like from the 60s by an author, Shirley Jackson. Um, and Netflix did a uh, like a mini series or a limited series um, and it became super popular. And that's how I found it. I, my niece and my sister were like, you got to watch Haunting of Hill House. And it was really, really well done and horror, but in a way that's really clever. So then I okay. wanted to, of course, read the source material. So then of I course. read the book. So, and the book is totally different from the Netflix series, but in kind of a really cool way that just expands the lore okay. kind of. So would you say yeah. that like, cause I read, um, I of course watched the most perfect movie ever princess bride. And then I read oh, the course. book and they're very different and they're both perfect. Is it, is it kind of like that? Like you don't have to say, well, the book was yeah. better or worse, but they're, yeah, they're, they're, just, they're, they're not enough. even competing with each other. They're just yeah. like, they both have the same house in it and mm -hmm. the characters do some different things. Um, and they both, uh, and even tonally, they're totally different. Like the, the showrunner for haunting of Hill house has a really different story that he's trying to tell than what Shirley Jackson was trying to tell. Um, cool. They almost use the same universe to tell it. So it's, it's good stuff. Nice. And nice. classic, classic. I like it. Fiction. I like it. Well, I'm reading a book uh, by Do Douglas Wolk called All of the Marvels. I got it for my birthday. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially somebody doing to Marvel Comics what I have done to Twilight Zone, Batman, <laughs> zombie movies. I mean, it is right up my alley. That um, sounds like the your perfect book. Yeah, I really, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, the, the, the side, uh, what do you call that? The dust jacket, uh, -huh, uh yep. side, side, side explanation says, uh, Spine. yeah, yeah. Uh, well it's, it's, it's the part that the inner, inner the flap. flap. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it sounds dirty. Um, uh, he, he read all, all 27,000 plus comics that make up Marvel universe from alpha flight to Omega, the unknown. And then he made it make sense seeing into the ever expanding story in its parts as a whole and seeing through it as a prism through which we view the landscape of the American culture. Like <laughs> sounds like fun. It's, and it is, I'm really enjoying it. I'll have to actually get the name of that from you because my, my mm -hmm. ex-husband uh, is a big Marvel fan. And when he started going through the Marvel comics, like he mm -hmm. legit, like he made a spreadsheet to try yep. to keep up with all the different timelines and the, oh, the yeah. stories that interlapped. And like, it was a rather like if you geek out on spreadsheets and Marvel comics, it, there was, you go. it was a thing to behold. Nice. Um, so. <laughs> Very cool. Cool. Well, where can people find you on the social medias? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Amanda Lanham yoga and, um, Lanham L A N H A M silent H. Okay. 
cool. And is there uh, anything you want people to follow? Anything that you've got coming up that you want to plug? Uh, nothing super specific, but I tend to post through my social media, both my teaching schedule. So if you're here in the San Francisco East Bay and you want to come take a yoga class with me, um, I like to kind of weave some elements of storytelling into my yoga classes. So it's good times. Um, and then uh, follow me on Instagram. I also do some singing. So I post some things there as well. Very nice. Uh, a polyglot. Yes. Um, I'm Damien Harmony. Uh, you can find me at Duh Harmony on Insta and Twitter. Um, two H's in the middle. You can also uh, follow my partner uh, who should be back soon at E.H. Blaylock on the Twitter at Mr. Blaylock on uh, the, the what do you call that? Um, the TikTok. The TikTok. That's yeah. what the kids call it. That's what the kids call it. Uh, and uh, you can also find both of us uh, corporately at Geek History Time. Uh, both on Twitter and geekhistorytime.com. Uh, so hit us up there. You can also find this podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe, rate, review, give us the five stars that we earned. Look at the talent that I'm pulling in to be on this <laughs> show. Uh, give us that five-star review. Tell people how much you like it. Share it with your friends. If you don't like it, shut up. Um, but you can find us on the <laughs> Apple podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, on Spotify. It's It's just all kinds of good fun. So... Um, you can find us there. You can find me finally uh, at Luna's in Sacramento uh, on January 14th, as well as on February 4th uh, and March 4th, uh, Slinging Puns, because Capital Punishment has come back live. So I think this will release just before that. So you need to save up about a buck 50 a day until January 14th. So you can have the $10 to get in and you need to bring proof of vaccination. Uh, proof of three shots is preferred, but uh, you at least need proof of your double vax. Uh, that way we can keep people safe and keep doing this. So, well, uh, Amanda Lanham, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you for having me. For A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And as Ed Blaylock would currently say, always roll a 20. Actually, he doesn't say that. He says something different. I, You know, Ed, come back. God damn it. <laughs>